Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Zinzi Clemens. Zinzi is the author of the novel What We Lose, published this year by Viking, and a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree. A graduate of Brown and Columbia, Zinzi is a co-founder and former publisher of Apogee Journal and a contributing editor to Literary Hub, and her writing has appeared in Zotrope, All Story, The Paris Review Daily, Transition, and elsewhere. She was raised in Philadelphia by a South African mother and an American father. What We Lose is a novel about grief and belonging. It focuses on Tandi, a young woman born to African-American and South African parents and raised in Philadelphia, who has just lost her mother to cancer. The novel traces Zinzi's own story, from her mother's death in 2012 to Zinzi's experience across cultures and communities. In our conversation, Zinzi talks about writing around what she wants to say, writing in what she calls the negative space. And what we lose is a prime example of that. The chapters are short, episodic vignettes, and she intersperses mixed media, like photos, hand-drawn charts, excerpts from South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. What I found so arresting about this approach is that it gives shape to a nebulous abstraction like grief without limiting it to that shape. By tracing the edges, we the readers see how much more is there. It's an inventive example of the so-called iceberg theory that Hemingway made famous when he wrote, the dignity of movement of an iceberg is due to only one-eighth of it being above water. The success of What We Lose has made Zinzi a prominent young writer of color. We talk about the implications and expectations of that kind of attention. We also talk about the writer as observer and the author who changed Zinzi's life. One more thing. This episode was recorded live at the Detroit Foundation Hotel, a new space with a beautiful podcast studio, when Zinzi was in town as the featured author of the Shady Ladies Literary Society is a wonderful series of events here in Detroit that features emerging women authors. Many thanks to the Detroit Foundation Hotel and Shady Ladies founder Amy Heimerl for their roles in this episode. I know the assumptions about my work going into it, and I wanted to say I acknowledge that I see you making that assumption, and I want to tell you that it's not what you think it is. There are a lot of autobiographical inspirations going on in What We Lose. Uh, do you want to talk about just sort of your choice to write in that way and, you know, what they kind of call this autofiction thing? I don't know if you mm. feel like you identify with that, but is that just kind of how it came out or did you feel like you needed to have experienced something to be writing about it in fiction? I, I didn't intend to write about this originally, but um, I went through this experience um, of having uh, my mother uh, pass away from cancer. And, um, while that was happening, um, I was taking note of what was happening around me, um, both in regards to her physical condition and sort of my emotional reaction. And, um, you know, over time it just became a story that I felt like I needed to write. Um, and obviously I had that experience. Um, and it didn't make sense that I wouldn't include that. So, um, you know, I just started writing the book. Um, I think that uh, fiction, well, first of all, I'm primarily a fiction writer, and, and I, I write fiction for a reason because I feel like it gives me a lot of freedom to express myself. Um, so there was never a question of whether I would write it as nonfiction or fiction. It was just, it, it was just what I did. Um, and it was actually only after 
I finished the manuscript and started shopping it around that I had this thought that people were going to ask me that question. And, um, you know, this is not in regards to you, but, you know, a lot of times I've been asked to justify it, you know, um, like, why didn't you write this as a memoir when there's so much true? And I've always just found that pretty ridiculous because, um, you know, every novel, every piece of fiction is heavily inspired by the author's life or something that they've seen or witnessed. Um, and I think what I did with this book is just that I acknowledged that there was truth behind it. And I think, you know, um, I think people sort of latched onto it, but I don't see it as any different from any other novel, you know. That's really interesting, I think, the, the idea of justifying, because I feel like I think you're completely right that what fiction lets you do is find a form for thoughts that you maybe don't quite know that you have, or like you Mm -hmm. haven't really drawn the lines around. And I Mm -hmm. think to like limit it to a memoir and, and sort of make it feel more like a document or like Mm -hmm. a record. Um, I I don't know why, why it feels like you're, you would have to be uh, held responsible to create that record, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's just not something I was, interested in doing not that I won't be interested in it later on but um it's just it would have been boring for me I think yeah yeah I uh I talked a couple weeks ago to uh Carmen Machado uh Uh and we were talking about how we both thought that it was kind of silly that that people talk about this this idea of autofiction like Uh people haven't writers haven't always just been inspired by their lives forever but all of a sudden it's like and I I feel like maybe it has something to do with like I'm completely speculating and talking out of my ass a little bit, but like, you know, I love doing (laughs) (laughs) just like, you know, older generations of, of critics or writers just being like, these millennials are so obsessed with themselves. (laughs) I think so. I also think part of it is like our sort of celebrity tabloid culture where we want to have access to people. We feel like we deserve access to people's lives. Um, And I think readers now um, okay, this is going to make it sound like I've had terrible experiences with readers, and it's not the case. Um, I, you know, I, I appreciate everyone who has who has talked to me about the book, um, but I think that there is an expectation, and I've definitely been guilty of this also, that you feel like you spend time with someone with their writing, and then um, you have a right or a curiosity to know about their lives, and it's just not true. And I think. It also, my my issue with it is that I think it takes away from the enjoyment of the book itself and really, a really, um, you know, in my case, I think this has happened a few times, it takes away from people really um, sort of uh, analyzing or um, taking the art on its own terms. You know, it, it just kind of, I'm a teacher also, and that is never the way that I've taught my students to approach books. You know, you have to just go with what's on the page. And I think whenever we're focusing so much on the person behind it, we're really getting off topic. And the teacher in me, whenever that has happened, has felt the need to correct it, you know, but I I realize I can't do that all the time. You know, the other thing, I actually, um, I was just emailing with uh, a reporter who um, asked me to contribute to a story about uh, why there is like this tendency with writers of color to take their work as autobiographical. And honestly, I think that's a part of it. Um, 
So I'm still sort of like working through my own thoughts on this, but I feel, um, and we've seen this, you know, with, with people in other industries, particularly Hollywood, where we're expected as, uh, as people of color to be like spokespeople for our race or to be, you know, sort of provide access or like we're like tour guides to the experience. And so there's always this aspect where readers want to be shown something about your life or black life or something or like immigrant life. And it's just, you know, I think that creates um, a real difficulty for writers where we have to speak to that also. And I just kind of, you know, again, it's just sort of besides the point, you know, and I think um, it's, yeah, I think it's, it's a useful question up to a certain point. And I know that, you know, I've also invited it, but I think, um, I I always appreciate when people when that question is asked with the expectation that the discussion will go beyond like yes this is my life no it's not right because that's really that discussion is really more of what if anything I intended with the autofiction parts because you know I have those parts where I acknowledge um you know I basically break the fourth wall and I speak directly to the reader and that's because I knew that when people were taking picking up my book, they would have those assumptions. And so in those parts where I say, there's this one page specifically where I say, I know how you see me. And that is me as an author talking to the reader directly, because um, I know the assumptions about my work going into it. And I wanted to say, I acknowledge that I see you making that assumption. And I want to tell you that it's not what you think it is. Right, right. And you you made several interesting points there that I want to come back to, one of which is uh, the idea of being having to be representative, uh, I think, somehow also flattens both the actual person and the work at the same time. Yeah. Um, and and the other thing is the tour guide thing. Um, you know, I, I come at it from a very different place, of course, but I have talked about this on the show with them. Um, I had uh, Tani Nandini Islam on uh, yeah. a while back uh, talking about Bright Lines, and we were, we were talking about, I told her that, you know, I have this feeling a lot uh, writing about Appalachia, mm-hmm. which is so, you know, so maligned and so misunderstood in, in so many different ways, where I feel both the responsibility, but also like the desire to kind of set the record straight, but also then to get uh, frustrated that like I have to be I have to explain this to you you know mm. and it's kind of that like how can I help you sort of thing where you're like right. why do I have to be doing this also mm. you know and there are so many other people I think who have right to feel that so much more acutely mm. but I, I that's what always bothers me I think and I don't think there's an easy answer to it I think it's just kind of part of the uncomfortableness or the tension of that of that responsibility but mm-hmm. do you do you ever feel that way where you're just like so I guess I have to explain blackness to you <laughs> I guess that's my job now also yeah, like my whole life, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing is is um maybe time is the only thing, you know, but on the other hand, it's been happening a while like I mean, I feel like the thing probably with you, it's gotten really bad since the election, since the election right? Totally. And everyone's like, "Explain the white working yeah. class to us." Yeah. And yeah. it's like, "You never cared about me right. before." <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, I think I don't know. I think part of me wants to say that, like, the more the population changes here and the the less weird it becomes to be a person of color and the more accepted, but hopefully that stuff will go away. 
or at least there some of the like fetishizing may be lessened and i hope but at the same time i think part of part of the problem is that even though the population has become much more brown diverse um the publishing industry itself is still this little bubble of white wealth you know and i think that's really the problem you see um still so many books being produced and it's just like what were you thinking you know um and it's just this it's this really difficult this this really difficult kind of um sort of bubble i don't want to work again but it's something that needs to be pierced and it just hasn't for a really long time and i think it's just it's not good for writers but it's also not good for readers either you know so and this is something that you've written a lot about, right? You've done the, uh, you had a couple lit hub mm-hmm. pieces about the black avant garde and you know inclusiveness at literary journals. Um, yeah. So do you, do you feel like it's getting better? Maybe not in a, maybe not when it gets to the books, but but maybe in the indie press kind of literary journal world, or still not. Uh, you know, honestly, the thing that I see happening now that kind of upsets me. Uh, you know, maybe I'll get in trouble for this, but oh well. Um, is that. I think some of it, there definitely has been progress made, but I think there's also the tendency to, like, kind of go in the other, or sort of overcompensate now, and now, like, I see everything is about color, and that's not necessarily the answer either. Right. The point is, like, when it can't, I'm sorry, I'm talking No, 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 go ahead. I was just going to say, like, it's like, you know, when there's a person of color or a person of you know, non-heterosexuality on a show, mm-hmm. and, like, that's their role on the show, is to, like, be that personality yeah. type, instead of just, like, oh, this is also a character who has a normal life, yeah. who lives a life. Ad- absolutely, definitely. I think it's part of it, um, and that's, like, having to do with, like, the art itself. But also, what I see happening quite a bit is um, that certain writers will be promoted, I think, maybe sooner than they would if they weren't people of color um what i've seen recently is like a lot of um you know a lot of uh awards and things like that are really there's a lot of representation now um and ultimately i think and this has been also been written about as well and i think it it to a certain extent it happened with me also is that when you're sort of chosen by the establishment as a writer of color. Um, they kind of do it with very little regard for your well-being um, because you are this representative. And I see a lot of people who are getting, again, myself included, attention and accolades. Um, maybe a little bit before they should. And that stuff can have real harmful effects on your psyche and on your career. Um, and I think. Again, it's done without regard to the artists themselves. Um, I think in an effort to address these issues of um, lack of diversity. So it's like, okay, we didn't have... Everybody's making a big deal about how we didn't have any black writers, so let's just get five of them now and put them in. And it's like, you can... There are a lot of problems that arise from that. Number one, um, if the quality isn't there, that's going to be a problem. Number two... If people are getting things um, that they feel that they don't deserve, or if they're not ready emotionally for that, it can stunt you and your artistic growth. Um, and I guess I just resent in general 
um, this kind of quick decision making that's based on quotas or whatever. And I guess, you know, for listeners, you may think like, well, when do we ever get to a solution? You know, since you said we need more representation and now she's saying we need something else. Um, you know, I guess I, I don't really, in my writing, I barely ever offer solutions because I don't know if that's always my job and I'm not always the person who's correctly suited to do it. But in general, I think it kind of helps to have a certain code of conduct, how you approach things. And the only thing that I've kind of gotten to is that you have to treat people the same way regardless of those things. And I think what needs to happen is that instead of saying, okay, we have to go get more black people, we have to say, we're going to stop looking at whether someone's black or not. We have to stop looking at that and try our hardest to sort of mitigate that, you know, that attention that we pay to those things and try to pay real attention to the quality. In order to do that, there's work that needs to be done because no one's colorblind, you know. But I think in um, in that effort to address or correct imbalance and to try and um, correct your own vision is really what it's all about, you know, is because then when you do that, you try and understand other other cultures, right? Because if you're judging a book on its own terms, you have to do research, you have to understand where the author is coming from. And I think that's really the process that people need to engage in and not this, let's just, let's get some more, let's get, let's fill our rosters. And then the next day when the election comes up, then it's about white working class. And then we push these people to the side. Like, that's not, it's not how you do things. Like, this is literature, this isn't TV. (laughs) Yeah. Did you feel any of that weight when you were writing? I mean, obviously you were in a, in a very different state. Um, But were you thinking about the way this would be perceived from reader by readers from a black writer, did you feel like that was something you had to work like bake into the product? You know, like, do you mean do I felt like I had to play up my blackness? No, like, were you just a? Is that something that you were like self conscious of as you mm-hmm. were writing? Like that this will be like a work by a black writer, and I will have questions based on that. Um. <clears throat> yes and no. I th- so first of all, I mean. Um, you know, I've been writing for a while and I've published and I do tend to write about race. So it's just something that I think I've gotten used to, you know, that's, that's just who I am and, um, about writing about certain topics specifically. And I, I think more than that, it's a little more complicated because, um, as is the case with Condi, I'm sort of, um, in the like in the middle of a Venn diagram of very various identities, um, so I was aware that uh, for white audiences I would be perceived as black, but that I'm also multiracial. Um, I also look the way that I do, um, and I think all of those things would come into account. And I think. Um, you know, I'm used to getting it from everyone. I think that, you know, the thing that's uh, maybe surprising and a new kind of element for me is because I wrote about South Africa, um, I also have that audience. So, um, you know, Americans will look at this as a South African book or an African book, and then South Africans will look, or Africans, um, will look at it as an American book. And an American who's talking about South Africa 
And all of those things, there's interesting politics that are different from all of those groups, right? So if you talk about, like, my privilege as a black person, as a lighter, a black person with lighter complexion, um, they will look at me that way from white audiences. I'm a black person. That's almost an opposite kind of relationship. Um, the African thing, you know, I'm also in a position of privilege because I'm from America. And then it's the opposite for Americans in my experience in South Africa. So it's just, it's almost kind of like, it can make you scream the number of people who are able to criticize me. (laughs) And it's, you know, honestly, like, I do get a lot of it, you know. Um, I, I can't say for sure, but I feel like, well, my entire life has prepared me for it, but it's also something that not everyone is used to. Yeah. I've yeah. built up a pretty thick skin. Is that Does that kind of tie into what you had mentioned earlier about uh, how you feel that some some writers of color kind of get held up maybe too soon and in a way that is damaging to them? Do you feel like that's part of... Do you feel like you've suffered damage like that? Um, a little bit. Yeah, a little. Um, yeah, I think it, you know, when the industry decides that they want you, it's a really weird thing. Yeah, that's what I'll say. Um, I feel like in some, I'm still catching up to it, and it's this experience of, like, feeling locked out for a long time, and I can't even say that I was completely locked out, because, you know, I, I worked and I was around, but I did have a hard time getting published before the novel. Um, I still don't have an easy time, or as at least as easy as I thought I would. Um, but just to have that, like, switch of being like, no, we don't want you, and then, yes, we really want you, and we you. want all of you. That is hard to deal with, because it's hard to know who to trust. Yeah, and I, I won't say I've been damaged. I think I've been um, unusually well-equipped to deal with it, but I think if I perhaps hadn't been, yeah, it would have been really difficult. Um, and I, you know, I hate to say it, it sound like, oh, success is so hard for me, a successful writer, but like, you know, it is, I'm still a human being, and I think, if you think about it as, as a very large industry with a lot of money in it, um, there's always expectation, exploitation going on, and, um, especially when you think about what the average writer makes, yeah. <laughs> how he doesn't see any of that money. Yeah, yeah, I, it's part of it, you know, and it, that's another thing is, like, people, for the number of times that people wrote about my book, sometimes I want to say, there are all these other books that no one is paying attention to, you know, and it's just, and that process of giving everything to one person is, like, you're just loading them down with things. That's more people from your community that are not going to like you, you know, are going to, you know, be resentful towards you. And it's just, it's, when it's not deserved, there are other effects. And, um, I, I've just always said, like, why don't, why can't we just spread this around a little bit? Right. You know, I think that's, and I think a lot of, a lot of writers, if you ask them, they would probably say the same thing. I don't think anyone wants to suck up all the oxygen. You know, right? And I'm certainly not putting words in your mouth, but I mean, I've never read, met a writer, myself included, who feels completely deserving or completely confident yeah. about it at all in the first place. You know, so it's kind of like there's that baseline, just you know, existential crisis that <laughs> writers are just like living in. Yeah, yeah. You know, 
Writers are self-loathing beings. There's that is yeah. a big part yeah. of it. <laughs> that you have a, a, a big interest in avant-garde and experimental literature. You know, I, I, we talked about the piece that you've written and how you've kind of championed that. Did you, um, but I've read you talk about how this kind of just came together in part because out of necessity for like the bandwidth that you had at the moment. Mm, um, like the vignettes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So can you talk a little bit about putting it together and, and putting it in the shape that it ended up in? Yeah. I mean, I think when you said that I have like a, your preamble that I, <laughs> I've been interested in avant-garde literature. I'm honestly, I'm not sure. I, I Am I putting too I'm much weight sure. on that one no, piece? I yeah, no, 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 no. I so this is how it because it's just a little complicated. Yeah. Um, and I think it's like an important and interesting thing to understand. So part of what I said on that piece is that um, you can't define the experimental except in relation to its context. So there's no one way of, you know, experimental literature doesn't look one way. It's just about um, what is sort of cutting edge at that time. Um, And honestly, a lot of experimental literature I have a hard time with. Um, It's just that I found certain works that resonate with me most tend to be a little bit outside of traditional writing. Um, I, my um, undergraduate program, I studied creative writing and it was, I went to Brown and their program is heavily, heavily experimental. And I didn't really have a good time there. I, I didn't, uh, I didn't really study with any of the really experimental writers. And I felt very alienated from it as a community. And I think part of that was race, but also part of that was because um, the type of writing that I like tends to be pretty accessible. Um, and so for me, again, that, that's a long uh, intro, but um, so for me, I never think of it as like I'm writing into an experimental tradition. Um, it's always just been organic. And I think the reason why it comes off as something new or avant-garde is because I just don't have many preconceived ideas of how I should write. And that's just always how I approach it. And I look at every project as its own thing. So, you know, when I write stories, I think about it in terms of, you know, what can I do in this um, this number of pages? And part of that is always how how it will look and feel to a reader. And that feel and look has to be dictated by the story itself and what I'm talking about. So for example, I wrote this story about, uh, it's called uses for uses for this body. And the idea was just to think about like every part of my body and like write a little story about it. Um, and it ended up being this story about like a black woman who had gone through a breakup and, um, was sort of dealing with I guess um, feeling like her body wasn't worth was a bit worthless, and um, you know that came about just because I had this idea and I had an idea about how to express it, and it's the same thing for the novel. You know, I I started from these pieces, and those were actually like journal entries. So it was not something I was doing like I was sitting down to write a book. It was just that was my starting point, and. I liked how they looked on their own. I didn't think that they needed to be changed that much. 
Um, and again, it made sense with the subject matter because so much of that experience is not is not about words. It's about what you can't put into words. So it makes sense that there's more white space. And then from there, I just constructed this thing that again just made sense for the story. Um, and that's really the only concern that I ever have is just doing something, just serving the story. And um, again, I think it's just that. I'm perhaps a bit iconoclastic or something, and I just, you know, I don't feel limited in any way. So it ends up being weird sometimes, but I guess I don't see it that way. Right, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one thing that I, I thought was really fascinating, and then I had read later that you um, were pre-med at first, so I thought maybe this is where this kind of stuff come from, but, like, the uh, all the mathematical stuff that goes on in there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had to so. read the uh, the asymptote uh, definition like four or five times. I was like, wait, I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> yeah, and for me, that was like so exciting. <laughs> I was like, this is great. This is the heart of it. That's what's so much fun about writing, just being like, am I going to do that? I mean, I'm doing this. I'm doing this thing. It's in there now. It's in there. Exactly. Yeah, that was like the whole experience of writing the book for me. I was very positive that it would never be published. And I was great, you know? That's when you're having a lot of fun, because you're just doing what you want to. And I, I didn't really, I don't really pay attention. I try not to think about what anyone will think of it while I'm writing. Um, yeah. But, the sorry, the pre-med stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I started out uh, studying, like, biology, and I think, you know, I grew up with, with immigrant parents, and they had both, you know... I guess you could call them strivers. You know, they'd, uh, they were both the first ones in their families to go to college, and really, there's a big difference in their families from their parents' generation to them. Um, and, you know, as is the case with a lot of immigrant families and, you know, families who, you know, people who come from poverty, um, there's a lot of pressure to support yourself. And with my parents especially, um, and that career made them happy. And it's not that I didn't like it because I had a genuine interest, but there was definitely that added incentive that my parents <laughs> would like it. Yeah. Um, and so I did it for a while. At the same time, I I, I drew a lot. I did a lot of visual art. And, um, I just, I feel like I always, I had these dual needs, I guess you can call it like left brain, right brain, but I always forget which one is which. Um, but I've all, I feel like I'm always serving both of those in whatever I do. So there has to be the like logical side of me that feels satisfied and the sort of scientific side, and then also the expressive side. And I think, uh, literature kind of combines both of those. So the way I, the way I started writing was, um, through high school and into college, I was I was studying biology, and I was pre med major, and then doing a lot of visual art classes. And then when I got to college, um, I took a couple of classes in science that just made me realize that it wasn't for me. I think it was like lab class or something, and it just felt really pointless and like very far from any genuine discovery. You know, because if <laughs> If you go, if you remember like college labs, you're just going in and replicating an existing experiment. So you're not finding anything new. You're just 
you're just finding one of like three different outcomes. And I was in my sophomore year, I think, um, in a botany class, and I actually remember this. I was like outside of the lab building, and I was just dreading going inside. This was just, I knew I was going to spend four hours in there with like a fucking pipette and a microscope to find something that I already knew, knew what it was. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is the point of this? And, you know, after that, I, my parents, I told them I didn't want to do science anymore. And they were, of course, very upset. And I started taking literature classes and philosophy classes. And eventually, I uh, just took a creative writing class. Um, and I really liked it. And it turned out I was good at it. And so it was just like a total, it was a fluke that it happened. But I think um, it made sense that I did because... Again, it's like that left brain, right brain thing sort of in one place. And then there's also, you know, the incentive of, I think, writing for my parents was slightly more respectable um, than being a visual artist yeah. for me. Mm-hmm. And I think a little easier, too. I don't think I would have had that much success as a visual artist. I think it's a little, um, I think that there's a little less of a charted path mm-hmm. in that sort of career. So. Yeah. Right. And uh, and something that I really like, too, um, because like I was saying to you earlier, coming from a journalism background um, yeah. and, and very much like you said, kind of always feeling the pull of both of those sides. Like for me, it doesn't go quite to the to the analytic scientific sort of mm-hmm. stuff, but like the like facts and, yeah. you know, order and all of that. Um, I really loved for numerous reasons, but I really loved the interspersing of all the Winnie Mandela uh, mm-hmm. stuff mostly because I, I, I think it, um, and I had read afterwards some reviews that were like, oh, this feels a little like distant or whatever. And I was, kind of, mm. and I feel like that was maybe a little bit of the point, but I also really liked how it complicated like our adoration of the mother and like why we, why we do the, you know, why we hold up the idea of the mother. Mm. Um, but I liked it also as just like facts, like facts <laughs> inserted into the middle. Like, I was yes. just like, this is such a nice little, just like, the Venn diagram overlap, yeah. Yeah, I um, I think that, you know, I just started looking through that report. It's the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. So they had all of these hearings, and um, I was actually, they published all the transcripts, and you can download them for free. Um, public domain, woo. Um, so I went through them, and I was just, I don't think I was searching for anything yeah. in particular. I was just browsing. and. I've gone through them several times because there's hundreds of pages and there's just always something to find. And for me, that part especially, I think, is really a special part of the book because of the significance of that document and what it means. And I've actually thought about it a lot recently with things that are happening in the States politically, like Charlottesville especially. We've never had that sort of acknowledgement here. Um, and I think it's just been, it's become even more clear over time what effects that has had that we don't have. We've never had formal reparations. Right. We've never, I mean, it's a, it's controversial to even suggest that we should consider doing reparations, right. you know, and we still have these debates about whether people, like whether Donald Trump is racist or right. not. It's like, this is not a question, you know, and it comes from this. The fact that we have not accounted for our sins, we have not 
apologize to the people who need to be apologized to, and it creates this sort of state of madness in our country that I think is really largely responsible for what's going on now and largely allows it to keep happening. So I think, you know, absolutely the the content of that piece was really important, and I put it in exactly for that reason, because Winnie Mandela is such a complicated figure, she is the so-called mother of the country, and it's important that we not rob mothers of their potential for brutality for for many reasons. Um, But it's also, it was just an important, it was important, you know, like, shout out to me, this document is really important, and I think people need to not only read it, but think about, you know, why why it's important and what it did for people. Switching a bit to just like the actual act of writing, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, what you're kind of, do you have a daily practice, what your writing practice is like? You know, do you like to have a routine or how does that work for you? Ah. Uh. No, I don't, um, and especially now, so I haven't written seriously in a while because of the book tour thing, um, but usually, no, I think when I'm, like, really deep into a project, I usually will spend, you know, hours a day on it, but when I don't have anything that I'm working on, um, you know, I usually don't, and there's just—it's more like a cycle of guilt and <laughs> and action. So, you know, you don't write for a week or a month or two months, and then you're like, "I'm horrible. I got to get back on the horse." And then you get back on the horse, and it's more like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this great line in uh, "The Writing Life" by Annie Dillard where she's talking about exactly that, and she said, "And then the more time you spend away from it, the more and more scared you get of it, and you should be scared." <laughs> So true. So true. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's why people have, like, routines. Right. Because then when you get back into it, too, the first things you write are always bullshit. It's like you have to purge the bullshit crap out of you Mm -hmm. until you get to the good stuff, so it's better to just keep going. But the other thing about writing every day is that much of it ends up being thrown out. Oh, yeah. And it can be demoralizing. Mm -hmm. Um I guess I'm more of a person who works on inspiration. Okay. I'll say that. So you'll be, like, thinking about an idea for a while before you sit down to start. Yeah. yeah. And I, uh, my husband's also a writer. We talk about this sometimes. We're both the type of writers who, if we see ourselves writing a lot of crap, it it can kind of burn that creativity. Uh, so if we're writing, like... You get a little we, too self-aware. Yeah. So we both tend to, like, only sit down to write when it's pretty gelled already. So I'm, I'm more that type. I'll be, like, turning things over in my mind for a really long time, and then I'll sit down. It's just so interesting to hear how other people do it, because I think mm. that I end up doing, I think I end up doing all of that thinking just on the page, and then throwing mm. out the crap, and then I think the then the challenge is, like, making peace with that being the process, <laughs> where you're like, this is all crap, just keep going, just keep going. Yeah. Or do you have a new project right now, anything that you're thinking about? You don't have to talk about it if you don't uh-huh. want to. I know that sometimes stuff in progress or new things people are like no 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 it's fine um i'm working on essays now and i think we'll i'll probably have the second one be an essay book about uh any like one topic or kind of just i think i'm still deciding that but my writing my essays tend to be on you know sort of in the same realm so 
race, gender, politics, that realm, you know. Do you feel like you have, like, kind of a, a natural, like, form, like a, a genre or whatever that feels, or does it feel best to you to kind of just keep yeah. moving around? <clears throat> um, my natural form is definitely the vignette style, and I kind of change it up uh, at different times, but I definitely tend to write in these, like, little short sort of sections, and one way that um, someone in my, um, in one of my workshops described my writing one time, and I, I always thought it was very accurate um, as, like, writing in negative space. So I tend to write, like, around a topic. I never say what I mean. I write what's on the edges of what I mean, and then I let the reader sort of discern what I mean. Mm. Um, and that tends to always be how I write, and I think that naturally sort of lends itself to vignette um, because there's only so much you can say when you right. approach it that yeah. way. So it's always, yeah. That's really interesting. Were you aware that you did that until it was pointed out to you? Uh, in the, no. Like in so many words. Yeah, yeah I, you know, when it's only when things are pointed out to you yeah. that you really kind of accept it. You yeah. Know, I think I found myself, I find myself doing that a lot. So the way that I tend to work is like, I'll start out with something more traditional, something more linear, and yeah. then I'll just start cutting away. Um, because things will seem too obvious to mm. me, or, um, you know, really, my thing is always, like, I, I'm not an easy answer person, and I'm not a single answer person, so I, I'll write something, and then I'll take out the answer part, and, um, that, that just feels natural, and I think I find myself in my process doing that a lot, um, but it's hard to, you know, you don't always know what effect your writing has on well, it's really hard to see outside of it. So I think when that person said that, it rang very true. So it was like something that I kind of recognized on some level. But when she said that, I accepted it as truth. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me, I just uh, read Reading Like a Writer by Francine Prose. And she has, uh... oh, wait, is this in her book? Or is it in, it might be in How Fiction Works. Somebody is quoting Chekhov. Ultimately, what matters is that Chekhov said it. So whatever. Uh, that like the artist's job is only to identify the problem and not to provide a solution. Yeah. And that I, I thought of that earlier, the way you were talking, and yeah. then you just reminded me of it again. But I like that idea, and then especially with the way like formally that your writing looks on the page, like mm. you pit, like the negative space kind of has a an aesthetic representation too. Yeah. 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 Um, I think it's also like kind of there's always a connection between personality and writing style, and I think it's also kind of how I am. So I tend to like not. Uh, I don't know. I'm always like, I think I'm that person who's like really quiet for a long time, and then I say something, and then I kind of go away. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm always the one who's hiding out. And like, is Lindsay like, asleep? And it's like, no, yeah. I'm just formulating an answer to the question you asked 20 minutes ago. No, sometimes I am asleep. <laughs> I'm just not, you know, like, I don't, I don't, like, show myself that much, so I yeah. think it, it comes out on the page, too. It's sort of something like that. <laughs> uh, a, a kind of a two-part question. What do you feel confidence about as a writer, and then what uh, do you feel fear about as a writer? Mm. I'd say I feel pretty confident in my ability overall. Um, and I think that comes from... That's not because I'm the most amazing writer that's ever lived. I think it's more about me knowing my limitations. I'm pretty good at that. 
and I tend not to um, take on projects or topics that I don't. I know that I can't sufficiently address. Um, I'm also pretty good at choosing topics. Um, I think the thing that makes me nervous is really it's really more about the reception. Mm. You know, I don't really. I don't doubt myself, my own, myself, really. Um, it's more about what other people will think of it, if it will ever, you know, catch on, those sort of, and really more, really more than all of those things being misinterpreted, mm. I think, has been, and that's been a hard thing to deal with, I think, having the book out. I think I expected it maybe more. Um, but yeah, I think there's that always, you know, uh, it's like a classic like mixed kid thing. You always have a thing with rejection, <laughs> like being rejected by, by but, groups yeah. and people, you know, and I, it's always been a thing for me. What do you feel like has been misunderstood? Um, I think, you know, we kind of started out the, the conversation where I was talking about, you know, this Venn, I mean, the center of mm-hmm. a Venn diagram. Um, I think, I've been misunderstood in ways by all different types of people. Oh, okay. And, um... So less the, like, oh, I love how you did X, and you were like, oh, I was really trying to do Y. mm -hmm. But more just kind of, like, people sort of only looking at, like, half of the... Or getting half the puzzle or something. Yeah, yeah, it's more like that, yeah. You had this uh, quote in Vogue that I loved and wanted to uh, hear you talk more about, uh, because I completely agree with you, Uh, any writer who's worth anything is outside for some reason. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's almost like a matter of, like, physics or something. You can't be writing and be participating at the same time, you know? And it's really important, I think, that writers remember that. One thing I have a hard time with... um, and there are certain very popular examples that have happened recently. I'll leave it up to determine what they are. Um, people, when people write things like, and I'm sure I've been guilty of this sometimes, so whatever. But I'm just gonna say it. Um, when people write like too quickly after something has happened, I think is when probably a good illustration. A yeah, I mean it's it's a good illustration of that. Um. um but I think it's really important when something happens to sit back and digest and think about it, really think it through. You know, it's one of the really terrible side effects of social media. People need to process. Um, and I think when writers confuse themselves with participants in that way, um, and that's what, when they misunderstand their job is when you see a lot of problems happening. You know, um, and even with myself, where I'm, I'm a writer who has sort of an art activist bent to my work. Like I, I believe that it should have some kind of impact in the world. I still don't call myself an activist. I still don't act that much <laughs> because my job is to observe. That is what that is. My action is to sit back and understand and digest um, and. Yeah, again, I just think it's really important for writers to remember that and to sort of relish that, um, because when we start acting too much, too quickly, is when you usually get bad writing, you know? 
So, yeah. Yeah, that's a really, really, really smart point. I've never thought about it. I've always just realized that I was not good at social media, but there are so many writers who are really good at it, and it's so weird. Yeah, this is going to be... Not to be... Yeah. I feel like I've just reduced your point to, like, you tweet no. a lot, but, you know, I, it, it's kind of part of the, a symptom of the disease, I guess. I'm not going to put myself all the way out, <laughs> out, out there on this one. I know it's a controversial point, but... I will say there are very few writers who I respect who are also prolific tweeters. They do exist, um, but there are very few. Yeah. Do you think that there's a piece of that as well? Probably a much smaller piece, of course, but that is maybe just seeing too much of a personality of a writer when you don't want it. You know, do you, do you, as a reader, want to just kind of have the experience of the page and that's it? Yeah, I, I think that, ki- that can happen. But as a writer, and you're probably aware of this too, um, when, you read an, when you read a lot and you read about enough writers, you realize that most writers are terrible people. And it's, again, and that's the whole, like, autobiography part. It's like, it's not, me is not important. You don't, you wouldn't like me. Most people would not like who I am. Do you think you're a terrible person? No, I don't think I'm a bad person, but I'm just I'm just quiet and yeah. introverted and yeah. I'm not I'm not in, I'm not interesting. I don't think I'm interesting in that way. You know, like and, and again, it's besides the point. Yeah. It's not about my personality. Right. Um and I think yeah, it can be jarring sometimes, especially if you have an idea of who a writer is from their books and then you get their personality. But I guess I'm saying like that doesn't shock me as much because I understand that there's that distance and right. I think for People who aren't writers or maybe haven't read as much, maybe that's more of a surprise and that's where that comes from. I think it's more like, um, I don't think, like, if you're a reporter, I think it's an important thing to be able to think on your feet. But if you're a novelist, that's not what you're, again, that's not your job, you know? And I, I think there's a real, like... I've tweeted stupid things, obviously. Sure. Like It happens to everyone. But I still, every word that you put out into the world, you should be thinking about. That's your job. And it just, it, it, it's, it's completely contradictory to me to be someone who cares about words and to be writing. And basically, and you're publishing, you know? You're putting that out into the world. And I just don't think, see the two as commensurate, really. And that's why I say, there are definitely people who can do it, and that's not my skill set. Some people just think on their feet, and there's some novelists who do it. But from what I've seen, it's very rare. And I think, I guess, that, you know, you should choose carefully. And I think it's fine to not be a social... There's a lot of pressure now to be really involved in that, and it's the wrong kind of pressure. I don't think people should cave to it. You know, I don't... I've never seen that much of a difference in literature between, like, someone who has 3,000 Twitter followers and someone who has 100, you know? Like, it's just not, it's not important, and I wish people would stop paying so much attention to it. Yeah. I'm just thinking as you're talking about how it seems like you have a very solid sense of self, and I, I don't know if you would agree with that, uh, but, and I've known you for approximately an hour and a half, so, uh, but I wonder, you know, as much as identity becomes a theme in the book, Um, Mm -hmm. how do you, do you kind of, do you feel like your identity, your understanding of your identity is something you're working through in your writing? Obviously in the larger sense of, you know, this group doesn't feel like it totally accepts me and neither does this one. And, 
but you know, do you kind of feel like that's a, a, a major theme for you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's something, again, that's a part of like my personal life that ha- translates into the writing. So um, I don't like to focus too much on the rejection part of it, you know, because I, there's this idea of like the tragic mulatto, what, you know, who is like, you know, not accepted by anyone and it's this thing and they cry about it. And, uh, you know, I, I don't like to, I don't like to focus on that aspect. What I like to say is that like, um, because I've never felt, it's more about my feelings in a group, right? Because the other thing is like, I've never been treated that badly by any group. It's just that I've just been made to feel different. And that wasn't always with bad intention. Uh, but what in my life, what I've gotten used to is, is because I'm an observant person, um, recognizing that I don't belong and having to like navigate that on my own. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's where probably my predisposition to writing came from mm-hmm. is the realization that I am a single person and I'm alone and sort of reconciling that with how to act and how to be with people um, and where I fit in the world is something that is that I've always had to think about really consciously. Um, and I think probably more than anything, it was the experience of being shuttled back and forth between countries. Mm. Um, when you do that, especially when you're a kid, you become much more adaptable um, and you become much more used to observing what group you're in and figuring out, like, almost unconsciously how to put yourself in that group. Um, This is something that um, Sadie Smith has written about, something that Barack Obama has written about quite a bit, is this sort of adaptability. You get this fluency with people. Um, And I think that it came first in my life, um, because I really like, I don't, I don't, I just interact with people as people. And I mm-hmm. think I actually have a much easier time with all different types of people because I'm used to that. Um, but it's because I basically had to like hack group interactions. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I about it a lot. And so it is something that, you know, I'm always conscious of in my writing and that I think that I, because I understand it well, I write about it well. But it's definitely, like, it came first in my life, mm-hmm. and then it happened in writing right. for me. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your reading life. Um, mm. So, like, what do you like to read? What are you reading right now? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, probably, this is probably, might be surprising to people who aren't writers who are listening. Um, when you become a professional writer have a lot less time to read what you want to Mm -hmm. so first of all a lot of what I read is like either assignments Mm -hmm. for students or research Mm -hmm. um in my own time I read a lot of nonfiction. Mm. um so I tend to read like when I read fiction it's usually older stuff uh things that I'm really usually catching up on Mm -hmm. so like I read the Argonauts Ah, uh, yeah. Like, really recently? Yeah. I've read it not too long ago. Don't feel, like, definitely okay, within cool. the last, like, six months. Okay, yeah. cool. And I'm always, like, I'm, I'll pick up, like, the hot book or something, like, five years right. later. <laughs> or, you know, something canonical that I should have read. Mm-hmm. Like, I was just, and I 
reread, like I was just rereading Notes of a Native Son for no reason. Um, and then I have my, um, my research. I think a lot, a lot of what I read is research, maybe not in a direct way, but I'll pick something up with the idea that like, I want to write something similar. It will inform my writing in some way. Um, recently, um, I just ordered, um, have not really gotten that far into, but, um, Octavia Butler. Mm. Um, and that's because uh, I think perhaps, don't hold me to this, the next book that I, the next novel that I write, maybe something similar, mm-hmm. similarly speculative, but not science fiction because mm-hmm. that's not really my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, like, imagining a future, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of where, I mean, that's where the political moment, I think, is taking me right now. And then, um, Besides that, you know, I've read, I have, like, Naomi Klein's book. Mm-hmm. That was the one I, it was one of the ones I was thinking of as being, like, we're writing, like, at the moment. Right. We should, it's decent so far, but it definitely has that feeling of, like, it's You gotta get something out now. Right now. Yeah, exactly. That wasn't the number one offender. I'll leave you to guess what that was. <laughs> that one is, but this is one of them. Um, so, I read a lot of, um. A lot of non, a lot of long form nonfiction, a lot of journalism. Um, usually, yeah, usually shorter nonfiction mm-hmm. and books tends to be fiction. Yeah. Has a book? Uh, has there been a book that's changed your life? Uh, yeah, I'd say probably like Toni Morrison's mm-hmm. books. Um, I mentioned the Bluest Eye. Uh, often in relation to my book, and I think um, with that book, it's not a perfect book, and I think that was probably important for me to see, um, because I could kind of see the threads, um, and that made me, that made it feel accessible to me, and the fact that it was her first book, it was something like, when I read it, I really admired it, and obviously there are, you know, topics in that book that I read about in my own, um, but it really made me feel like I could do it, you know, um, like, and that I could add something to the conversation. Um, and it was really important to me. Like, I've read it. I teach it all the time. I've read it, you know, five, five, six times. Now. It's just very, holds a special place. Yeah. I think that's so important, uh, that piece that you said about, um, like, being able to see the threads and just kind of being like, oh, I, I can, I, I can do it. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you just need a little shot in the arm. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a, it's like a moment that everyone has and you're just like, yes, I can, you know, especially if you're not like a white, a white straight guy, yeah. you know, it's like, it's very, you know, and we're the ones that tend to write the best anyway. So it's, <laughs> that's, that's, it's a really important moment, you know, and you realize, yes, I can. And then you start on the course. That's everything. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay, the, the, the final question is, uh, what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Hmm. I'd say writing something that feels accurate to what I set out to do, and having people who I respect respect it. Yeah.
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier. Writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.